what are great whites actually thinking when they attack people? What do they do when they dive to a thousand meters? Where do they breed? How do they breed? How long do they spend at sea? I caught up with Dr. Michael Domeyer to ask some of these insane questions. He has some fascinating and controversial views on the great white sharks. Beginning his career as a coral reef fish expert, he's dedicated his professional life to studying marine ecology and behaviour. He is renowned for his work with pelagic fish, most particularly white sharks. He's been a leader in the field of electronic tagging, even creating new and less invasive tags on white sharks and being able to identify them from just the patterns of their skin. His research was also the subject of a National Geographic channel series called Shark Men. He's released groundbreaking research on sharks, tuna, marlin, California coastal fisheries and coral reef fishes. But today I caught up with him solely for all the questions that I have about the great white shark. So let's see what Doc has to say. Good afternoon, Doc. Should I call you Madison or Pip? You like to be called Pip. You can call me whatever. I feel like my friends call me Pip, and then when I'm in trouble, it's Madison. So it really just depends. <laughs> okay. And what do I call you? Do I call you Doc? I like Doc. It's like a really um, respectful, I guess, kind of <laughs> nickname. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Sweet. So, Doc, thank you for talking to me today. Um, I've been following your work for some time. It's really cool speaking to you as well in my old home of the Big Island Hawaii. We can hear that rain in the background. Yeah, it's pouring today. And uh, thanks for having me, Pip. It's uh, kind of a pleasure. I've also been following some of your adventures. What you don't know is that um, we both have a love for Indonesia. I've done quite a lot of work there myself. Um, Worked on manta rays around Komodo Island and actually even got married in, in, in Bali. Did you? I did not know yeah. that. Oh, what a magical place Indonesia is. Oh, it is. It is. I mean, most of it. I've been a couple parts I didn't care for, but in, in general, I love it. Have you ever been to where I operate from on Lombok? No, I've been to Lombok, but I don't know that I've been to that particular village. Yeah. Okay, amazing. Well, you're going to have to come join on a trip. And I'm going to come stay with you on Big Island. Sorted. Done. Perfect. 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 <laughs> so I'm going to jump into some questions here. What I wanted to ask you to have you answer yourself, because I feel like I already know, but I want you to answer yourself. What do you think you're best known for in the shark slash scientific world? Well, certainly it's my great white shark research. And in fact, I don't really consider myself a shark researcher. I'm a great white shark researcher. Um, Many of my colleagues, you know, they cut their teeth on sharks back in the graduate school even, and they just eat, think, dream sharks. I actually like to work on many different things. And in fact, some of my most famous work is on coral reef fishes, reproduction on coral reef fishes. So I came to sharks, you know, pretty much about midway through my career, but I definitely made an impact with great white sharks, um, revolutionizing the way that uh, we track them. I did see this. I see that you started as a fish researcher mainly, and that's a pretty big leap from the, the coral reef fish to the big great white. Um, but yeah, that, that tagging stuff is, is quite fascinating. Fascinating 
but at the beginning was exceptionally controversial. I mean, the, the, the methods that I used back then um, set a lot of people off because I was handling and restraining really big animals. And uh, people thought, oh, they're going to die. In fact, I was lifting them out of the water at the beginning because I just felt that was the safest thing for the researchers. Um, and in some ways, it's, it's better for the sharks. It, it, there's, there's, there's pros and cons of both. But it's, that was a long time ago. Now many people are using the same methods, and it's much more accepted. But I literally got death threats my first year. This stuff particularly was um, shown in the media. It's interesting you say that because I, not on that level, but can definitely relate to being put down for certain things that then end up successful. And you almost have to just keep your head down and keep going and trust in yourself and not listen to the criticism. And then you eventually get to this place of, of where you're respected for it. And people look back and say, oh, yeah, you were right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even uh, there was, you know, some members of the shark conservation community that aren't necessarily scientists that were upset but there was a couple of my colleagues actually that were upset too and but i'll never forget you know one of them even came out on um, big time news channels here in the u.s saying he would never do what i did and it was unethical but then when i quit my series with national geographic he was the first person to step in and take my place so no <laughs> I, way <laughs> i talked to him a couple of years later and I asked him hey are you ever gonna like apologize to me he goes no he goes but you were right <laughs> that's when you need a little zoom recorder microphone in your pocket to capture that <laughs> exactly wow that's amazing okay um and this this tactic that you talk about because even i had my skeptical thoughts on the whole osearch thing at first but you're talking about lifting great whites out of the water and the concern with there is that they are quite large animals without a bone structure so explain it to me like i'm five why is that okay for sharks and the safest option sure i mean first of all um, they're not as big as other animals that are routinely pulled out of the water, like orcas, killer whales. They are transported in airplanes. They are much larger, and they have lungs, which are compressible. Sharks don't even have swim bladders. They use uh, a massive liver to regulate their buoyancy instead of a swim bladder, so they're relatively incompressible. I mean, go into your bathroom and take out a full tube of toothpaste and try to squeeze it. You really can't squeeze it that much because there's nothing in there that's compressible. So that's was how I felt the sharks would react, is that they really wouldn't be compressible. And in fact, they weren't. I mean, they would end up with some marks on their belly because we had a, a wooden deck, you know, with spaces in between and some redness. But they all swam off and they all, we tracked some of them. I tracked one of them for eight years in a row. Wow. Okay. So the the... the... The payoff for doing these things seems like far more significant than any damage done during the tagging process, obviously, when it comes to the conservation and understanding of great whites. Well, that's a great way to put it, because there was definitely a risk-reward analysis I had to do personally so that my own conscience would be okay with it. And I felt it was definitely worth the risk. In fact, I felt that at some point I might even kill one. Um, but you're talking to a guy, I have been studying fishes for more than three decades and the vast majority of fish studies involves killing fish i mean yeah i was that was the other thing i was going to bring up so shark scientists get permits to kill hundreds of sharks all the time yes but for some reason the great white shark is just like this creature that has become um you know it's become sacrilegious to to harm one and I, I saw, I knew that. I mean, they're very charismatic. 
Um, they're very interesting. Uh, and they scare a lot of people, too. But I, I just, I made the decision, well, if I do kill one, I still think it's going to be worth it. But I'm going to do everything in my power not to do that. And um, I didn't kill it. Well, I have to say, mad respect for you to for, for not doing what looked good on TV or social media, but following your heart and knowing what was right and getting the results that you did. Like, mad respect for you for that, even with the criticism in place. I know that can be hard, and I think it's really important that people realize that they're going to get that within their own industry as well. So, mad respect. You know, what? what I think also what people don't know, because they haven't probably followed me much since I left um, that television show, is that I have dramatically changed my methods since then. I no longer pull them out of the water. I mean, I was afraid of the sharks to handle them in, in the water, but over a number of years, um, I developed methods to completely safely handle these things and leave them in the water. And I can say, the sharks, when we release them, they have a lot more vigor than when we would lower them back in the water on, on the lift. Amazing. And this is all still like relatively new territories. When you started tagging Great Whites, it, it was obviously still stuff being figured out and people were trying new things. Even the hardware, the tags that we used the first year were just off-the-shelf tags that I bought. They didn't work very well at all. So I went back to the manufacturer and I gave them a bunch of specs and recommendations. They, they built the tag just the way I wanted it. And that's the tag we still use today. Everyone uses. It works Amazing. great. And like with these tags, you found out so much about where great whites travel and how they travel. What's been like the biggest thing that you've found out that's just kind of shocked you or changed the scientific community in regards to the migration routes of great whites? Sure. So actually, I used a different type of satellite tag in the beginning of my studying great white sharks called a pop-up satellite tag. But those at most can give you one year of tracking data. And after doing that for I don't know how long, maybe five, six, seven years, I realized that the females, I'm not capturing their entire migration route because they would leave Guadalupe Island, which is the site that I study them off the coast of Mexico. Guadalupe Island is an aggregation site for um, adult white sharks from like August until about the middle of December. The females, I'd only see them every other year because we got the very good at identifying individuals. In fact, that's become one of the, another very important part of our research is monitoring the population through this photo ID. But I soon realized I could never fully describe the life history of females unless I could track them for more than a year. So that's what made me start having to catch them and put because the next type of tag that could actually do that, have multi-year um, tracking, needed to be physically attached to the shark's dorsal fin. And so I still think that's one of my greatest achievements with these great white sharks is fully describing the female two-year migration route. And That's what blew amazing. me away, and I think most people, is that we thought these sharks lived near the coast pretty much year-round. It's not the case at all. Once the sharks become adults, and I'm learning even now, as, even as they become sub-adults, they spend more time offshore in, in the deep pelagic environment than they, do, than they do near the coast. And the females, once they get impregnated, they spend their entire gestation period which is 18 months offshore in the middle of nowhere no way so they're actually you don't think of them as a pelagic species you think they're always on the coast i mean in australia people think they're always right here looking for surfers to eat but they're actually spending most of their time in the deeper 
open kind of ocean areas. But take a look at their tail, or what we call the caudal fin. It doesn't look like a normal shark tail, does it? It looks like a tuna tail. No, they got chubby ankles. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's symmetrical. The 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 top half of the tail is is, looks the same as the bottom. Where normally in sharks, the top half's much longer. So that is um, that's equipment for a pelagic fish, not for a coastal fish. Amazing. Um, and do we know what they're doing when they're going into these spaces or do they, during their uh, gestation period? Do we know what they, what they do in this big open ocean? I don't. I have some clues. I mean, I'm the only person that actually went out to try to figure that out. We, I had enough tagged sharks pinging away from the middle of the ocean. We took a ship, one of the worst expeditions in my life because it was a month-long, miserable weather trip. <laughs> <laughs> we went out ended up going a little bit more than halfway from the mainland to Hawaii just to see what was out there. And what, what shocked me is there was almost no life at all on the surface. I mean, I love the fish. Everyone on the ship loved the fish. We trolled for thousands of miles and we only caught like one bonita near the, near the coast. There was no fish out there. But what we did find was a massive biomass of sperm whales. And with the sperm whales was this what we call the deep scattering layer. It's the, all these organisms that migrate in, at nighttime from deep water to the surface to feed. And amongst that deep scattering layer was three species of squid, two species of flying squid, and then Architeuthis, the giant squid. So there's a lot of biomass there, but it's quite deep. Wow. Okay. So you think that there's a chance that they're going and hanging out and hunting the deep water squid? Well, we're pretty certain that they're they're definitely hunting deep because we have our tags can record depth. And um, these earlier pop-up satellite tags had a depth uh, pressure sensor that would max out at 1,000 meters. They would peg that thing. So we don't really know how deep they really go, but we know they go below 1,000 meters. We had one female spend 12 hours below 1,000 meters. And at that depth, the water temperature is like ice water, probably two degrees centigrade. And there's almost no oxygen. I mean, oxygen levels are very, very low. It's incredible how they can survive down there. And they can't see anything. You know, it's just amazing. Doc, I didn't think it was possible, but you've just made great white sharks so much cooler. I know, just like <laughs> picturing them in deep water looking for giant squid. That is so epic. I just got goosebumps. This is better than any Shark Week episode, just hearing about these things. Well, I'm amazing. sure you're aware that the they are, for the most part, a warm-blooded animal. They can maintain a body temperature considerably above the temperature of the water, which that's what allows them to go down to that super deep water without just having a brain freeze. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that to me is fascinating. And I wanted to ask you about that as well. The fact that they do are able to elevate the temperature of their bodies, does that affect their brain? Is that why they're smart? Is that why they're curious? Mm, the smart and curious can be in, in, you don't have to have those um, heating mechanisms. I mean, they have heaters behind their eyes to keep their eyes warm and heaters in their brain. Because, but because those organs will start to fail in cold water. But if you just, if they just stayed in the warm, warm water, they wouldn't need that. Like, like manta rays. Manta rays yeah. are incredibly smart, um, yeah. but they don't have those heaters. Sure. Um, that's so amazing. And You've tagged sharks in Guadalupe that leave. How far do they travel? Do they cross oceans? Do you know anything about the, the travel of the great whites in Australia, for example? 
Um, I do know some, yes, because I have colleagues that work in Australia and also South Africa. So, of course, you have a famous one that went from South Africa to Australia and back. And then the your Australian white sharks, um, will, some of them will go to New Zealand. Then they go, they tend to go more up and down the coast. But that said, no one in Australia yet has used these spot tags, I don't think, that I'm using. I have not seen any long, long-term tracking data um, like I have. Really? So that's something we need to get on and, and do that. <laughs> well, I'm, there's a lot of acoustic tags, and you have a lot of the uh, monitoring stations all around Australia that pick them up. The thing about acoustic tags, though, is you're only going to know where the shark is when it swims past the station that you put in the water. So you kind of make assumptions about where you think it's going to go, which biases your study. The thing about the tags I use is that I, I don't have to, to guess where it's going to go. The tag tells me where it yeah gonna go way more accurate way more way more to find out that way um when you mentioned that they they're actually spending a little bit of less time than we imagined by the coast i think of things immediately like i think of human interactions and i think of australia's shark cull programs and i think of devastating encounters with humans and i think if that time at the coast is so little the great whites are obviously spending their time around our habitat for a reason and being there and, and interfering with them is is a huge deal to their population right if they're coming in for an, a significant reason yeah so there's there's um first of all a lot of the sharks that you have like say off byron bay are sub juveniles and sub adults um there you don't see as many huge sharks have you been to guadalupe island i have yeah i actually got to dive with the great whites there so, I mean, those are massive, especially if you went later yep. in the year, because if, if you don't go, if you go before mm, October, you're going to be looking at all the males. But you go after October and you're looking at the monster ones. And the, you don't see so many of that size in Australia. And I don't know why, but you do have a lot of the um, nursery areas and juveniles and subadults. And the interesting thing about Australia, it seems that the, these smaller sharks bite people more than that happens like in California, we have a lot of juveniles and they don't really bite people. Yeah, yet. we do have that <laughs> reputation. <laughs> we are, there's something weird about our sharks. They're probably just more aggressive, just like our women. We don't know. We're figuring it out. <laughs> That's the theory anyway. Yeah. Is it important when, when they're coming into shore, is that an important time for them? So what I think that I've, I've figured out with these white sharks is the adults gather to mate because white sharks they really don't like each other and and most times when they encounter each other one's going to be chasing the other one and fighting and they're just nasty that way but in order to, to survive they have to reproduce they have to mate so there are very special sites that they've selected where they aggregate in big numbers during this mating season it's kind of a protracted mating season and also what's been kind of confusing for scientists to figure this out is there also a lot of food at these spots but which is necessary because if you have a lot of white sharks you need a lot of food so i some of my colleagues will say no 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 they're just gathering to to feed well i've i've done all the math and i have so much um uh, anecdotal information i am positive they're mating at these sites and mating makes you hungry like that all makes sense yeah. <laughs> if if you disrupt um, mating aggregations, you can disrupt the entire population. And in fact, my 
earlier work on coral reef fishes, that's what I'm best known for is studying uh, spawning aggregations of coral reef fishes and how important they are and that we have to save them. Because once a fisherman discovers, let's say, a, a spawning aggregation of grouper or coral trout, they can wipe the whole population out in a couple of years of heavy fishing. So if we have a congregation of great whites, so for example, we have, if we have a congregation of breeding-sized great whites somewhere and someone's fishing them or we demand a cull or something, we're essentially wiping out a potential breeding zone. Absolutely. And also the nursery areas are also very specific sites, kind of special areas that have dense numbers of young of the year and one-year-old, two-year-old uh, white sharks. And they seem that if, if the shark is born in this nursery area, it might migrate to warmer water in the winter, but then it comes back for a couple of years in a row. So those nursery areas are also unique. And that's, uh, that's the painful part is, particularly in, in coastal Mexico, there are nurseries and there's a lot of net fishing going on and they do get caught in net. We had a net fishery in California, but it was banned in the early 90s and it was pushed offshore th- several miles. And it was at that point, the, the great white shark started to come back. And we didn't know it right away, but now... 20 years later, we see them in our backyard. Their numbers are going up tremendously. Okay, so you've, you've studied the biology and life history of white sharks. So I'm going to ask the question that I constantly get asked by every Australian. Have shark populations boomed? Has the population of great white sharks just boomed out of control because we've protected them for however many years? In certain parts of the world, the population has boomed. And on on both coasts of the U.S., West Coast, East Coast, completely different populations, but very similar story. They were protected, and marine mammals have come back. And Australia, I think, is another one where great white shark numbers are in, increasing dramatically. They're increasing dramatically. So it is true. So they, they have come back to, I mean, not even their normal, I guess, numbers, but slightly healthier numbers than what they used to be. Well, it's very hard to count fish. Yeah. Doing population estimates on fish stocks is one of the most challenging things. You have to be quite a math nerd, actually. Um, and you need really good data. So we're actually been able to do that at Guadalupe Island because of our photo ID project. We can identify most of the sharks that we see. And, and you know we're always adding new ones every year. But having that kind of database and having those year-to-year um, census of how many sharks were there and how many were new and how many are known, there is math that can be done to get a population estimate, or at least an index of abundance. So what an index of abundance is, it's a number that represents that, you know, you call it, that's how many sharks are there, but you, there's some uncertainty with your, with your math. And so you look for a trend then, whether it's going up or down. So the number doesn't really matter, but whether it's going up or going down is what matters. Right, and you're doing this by recognizing individuals by patterns on their fins and certain distinctive things like that? Yes, so the white sharks, uh, a system that I developed was, there's, there's, of course, white sharks are white underneath and gray to brown on top. And that line that of demarcation is like a fingerprint. It's not a straight line. It's a really crazy convoluted pattern. And that pattern is unique for each white shark. And in fact, they're not symmetrical either. So at the beginning, I just was taking like the right side or whatever side I could get and putting in the catalog. Well, I soon realized when I took pictures of the left and right of one shark, 
They don't look the same on both sides. So you have yeah. to have both sides of it to enter in the catalog. That's a lot of time, like really perving on the details of a great white skin tone to recognize the individuals. That's amazing dedication to identifying those sharks. Yeah, it, it was, but it's just great when everything falls into place. And I was able to narrow it down to we don't have to look at the entire line. We found the areas where there's the most variation, and it's around the gills, and on the tail, and around those um, pelvic fins. So the rest of it we ignore. Other right. people use the dorsal fin, but the dorsal fin, um, and there's all kinds of nicks and slashes and cuts on a dorsal fin. But in one year, I mean, these sharks, they literally do bite each other all the time. A shark can come bite off your whole barcode that you were reading on the edge of the dorsal fin. So it can change where the pigment patterns don't change over time. So this increase in population that we talk about, it's a good thing. It means that protection's working. But a lot of Australians would see that as a negative thing and a call to cull. Or they would link that to the increase of attacks. Honestly, I think that what's happening in Australia is going to happen in the U.S. as well. Because there are going to be more shark bites because there's more sharks. And actually, there's more people in the water, too. So, you know, I have switched my whole mantra of, you know, I got to study these to save them because that's kind of what I said 20 plus years ago. But now the population's come back so much that the mantra is we need to understand everything about these sharks so that we can teach people about when and where they are. And so if you're picking your kids up from soccer practice, football, you call it, or <laughs> in Australia, um, <laughs> you are deciding whether you're going to take them to the beach or going to go take them skateboarding. You know, but if it's a time of year when the sharks are really heavy that time of year, maybe you're going to take them skateboarding. See, I really like this because this is kind of also the direction that I went after a little while. At first, we were advocating for sharks. And then we just like, I hit that certain point where I was like, hold on people need to have this information as well and people have a right to be safe from sharks and there's no point in denying that they exist and that they can be dangerous and that people have negative interactions with them, especially here in Australia. So shark safety and learning more about the Great Whites is what I would rather do than just continue with this illusion that it's fine and they're totally safe and they're harmless animals and anyone can swim with them. Like I'd rather just have people be educated about them and know more about them but i guess we're lucky we're lucky they're coming back you know everybody here celebrates the whales coming back we have so many whales now and there are elders here who don't remember seeing a single whale during migration season as a kid and everybody's stoked on that but that also means we're going to have sharks right that's an obvious thing absolutely obvious and actually something that you said kind of raised the hair on the back of my neck about because there are social media influencers that work with sharks and their whole mission is to convince people they're harmless. And so they'll free dive with white sharks, even tiger sharks. And that to me is just sending the wrong message because look, 99.9% .9 of the shark species on this planet are absolutely harmless, but we do have three or four that can be deadly and you have to respect them. You would not go to the Serengeti and grab onto a lion's ear and expect them to just drag you around and not get your face ripped off. That's the same kind of respect we have to have for these white sharks. You have to respect them for what they are. They are dangerous animals. And the thing about that's a bit creepy. Well, first of all, so the, the probability of getting bitten by a shark is so extremely low. Um, and you hear these numbers, these statistics, which honestly are 
BS because they take the entire population of the world and then they divide it by how many shark bites. Well, most people aren't at the beach every day. You really got to yeah. just look at how many people are in, are in the water and also where they are. There are certain parts of the world that are much more dangerous than others. And Australia seems to get their fair share of shark bites for whatever reason on your West Coast and also on your, on your East Coast. In California, I found a new, a new adult aggregation site of sharks that it is so frightening. I would never go surfing there, even though the surf is amazing. And same with Guadalupe Island. I just, I just would not go free diving outside of a cage during that season at Guadalupe Island. You can do it, and I can do it. I know sharks well enough to do it. But it's not the one that you see and got figured out that's going to get you. It's the one that you don't see coming from behind you or from beneath. Yeah. Yeah. And like, this is why we love sharks, right? Because they're dangerous, because they're big and because they're terrifying to most people. That's, that's why I love sharks anyway. And I, I love accepting that, that risk when I surf. And I think that we're actually pretty lucky to have to take this into consideration. But it's going to take a lot for us to learn to coexist with these animals in the coming future. And I agree with you that we're going to see more interactions. But I think one of the biggest things that I've been seeing pop up continuously is the effects of climate change and the distribution of these sharks as well. Is that something that we're seeing in California too? It's hard to say because there, the shark populations have, are much higher now. When I say shark, I mean white sharks. And so we don't know if they're just expanding into habitat that they previously were in. Or not. And like you said, you actually kind of get jazzed off the danger part of sharks. But what I'm jazzed about sharks is that they are evolutionary marvels. They've been on this planet for so long. White sharks virtually unchanged for 10 to 12 million years. And in that time span, the, the climate has changed dramatically a couple of times. So I don't think climate change is going to impact the shark populations. It might impact their distributions a little bit, like they might, you know, chug a little bit further north because the water's got warmer. But these animals are, they can already tolerate a huge variation in water temperature. The way you're going to see the difference in distribution is at the young of the year and the, the small juveniles, because they really can't control their body temperature as well as the adults. And so they're, they're much more um, slaves to the water temperature than, than a full-on adult is. Just like teenagers following their hormones. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that, you know, that what you just said basically it just says it all, doesn't it? That we already know what great whites look for, what they follow, where they can go, what they can do. And now it's just a matter of educating ourselves and our surfing community here in Australia, for example, of what those incidences can be. Um, what's going to increase your risk of interacting negatively with a great white? Where are you going to be when it happens? What's the water temperature? What's the feeding opportunity that they could be around? We have this information, right? We just need people to kind of know it and to, to be willing and prepared and accepting of that risk. You know, but I'm a surfer too, and surfers are passionate. So yep. they're going to go surfing if, if, the, if the waves are up, no matter what. That's always what I really pray for is some incredible shark deterrence get get developed, either the, some type of device that's moored in the water that scares the sharks away or something that you wear that scares the sharks away. Unfortunately, there's a lot of junk on the market now that people might strap on their wrist and they think this is going to protect me. It absolutely does nothing. Um, yeah. Some of the some of the shark pods, you know, that have batteries and uh, they're more sophisticated. Those 
do work, but are they going to prevent a full-on Polaris breach attack from a white shark? Probably not. Yeah. Um, that I, I'm going to touch on that in a different podcast as well. It's something I mentioned in my surfing guide to shark is the difference of effectiveness in these particular things. Um, and I hope for that too. And then at the end of the day, I think most surfers, the good ones anyway, know the risk and are fully willing to accept it because surfing is life, right? Yeah, it is life. And also the risk is quite small, but you need to be smart. I mean, if there's a lot of bait fish in the water or if there's been a lot of rain and this water's murky um, or with with white sharks, if there's a bunch of um, porpoise or dolphin jumping around, you don't want to be in that. Because there are sharks going to be checking that out, and uh, you just might get tagged. Speaking of things that sharks like, you saw my footage from a few weeks ago of this dead whale that washed up on a beach here in Australia, and these amazing sharks that had come to check it out. Yeah, that was beautiful. Beautiful drone footage. I loved it. Thank you. I was screaming. I was just, I I had no idea that I was actually going to see sharks on that day and i just lost it oh my gosh i had to put my drone into slow motion settings to film slow-mo footage because i could not hold the controller still enough (laughs) to film anything (laughs) like anything slightly stable so i was like i'll just put it in slow-mo and then everything will look good and i continue to freak out on the beach here with excitement so that was amazing and then we had a long process of the community kind of trying to figure out what to do with the whale and then it seemed almost immediately that they were like okay We're going to drag it up on the beach. We're going to dump it in landfill. And everything you're saying just to me suggests that that was the wrong thing to do. You say that they have an 18-month gestation period and they use food to congregate, to mate potentially. And how important is something like a dead whale for a shark to have? It's definitely important. But some of it depends on where the shark is too. For example, you may have heard or read some of the row I got into with some people when they were diving on a dead whale here in Hawaii. And actually, uh, one of my sharks from Guadalupe Island showed up, uh, deep blue. Yeah. And they, they were, you know, hanging on the shark and taking pictures. And it upset me because in that environment, a, a meal for a white shark in these tropical waters is so rare that, and these sharks are pregnant. And these, these, these are very big females and they were huge, I'm sure. Pretty certain. Well, I can't say because if you have a shark that ate half of a whale, it's pregnant anyways. But <laughs> but you do not want to to push a, um you know a white shark off a meal where there are very few meals. But in other areas like in Cape Cod or Guadalupe Island, you know where there's marine mammals everywhere, it, it doesn't really matter. And in Byron Bay, I'm not really sure of the situation there. I mean, well, I have, we have been there. We have great whites that congregate with the whale migration, so we know that they're following the whales up and down, waiting for those opportunities. There had been no other whales that I know of dead in the area at the time. So my concern was they use all this energy to get to it and then they don't get any delivery from it. So definitely probably not as intense as an opportunity as the ones they had in Hawaii because it is an expected food source. But it was still amazing to see sharks that close into shore looking for food that they then didn't get. Well, honestly, the the worst case scenario didn't happen. And that is if they had just brought an excavator on the beach, dug a big hole in the sand and buried it there. That's happened before. Yeah, they and do then that, that sometimes. Whale, it releases um, lipids for years that attract yeah. sharks to that, that spot. So thank God they took it to a landfill. Yes, that was the, the only other thing. But sometimes they do that here in Australia. I've, I've 
seen that happen where they're like, oh, we'll just bury the whale at the beach. So it, it definitely happens. There's definitely not enough knowledge around it. Um, and, and yes, I, I can definitely sympathize with being frustrated at people diving on that particular whale incident in Hawaii. Um, and I, I, if I read correctly, the next day, the sharks didn't actually show up to the whale. So they effectively kind of scared it away from that feeding opportunity. It's hard to say. And they're actually a couple different days. There were three different sharks on, I think, two different days. But then by the third day, there was, you know, just a couple skittish tiger sharks and then nothing. Um, and, but there were, it went from just a couple of people knowing where it was to then putting out the radio calls. And then there's, you know, 50 to 90 people frothing around this dead whale. That's not a good scenario. I mean, the, the sharks are going to be pushed off of that. So you think just it was an important time to just let them be and just put them first and just stay out of the water? Yeah, no, or take pictures, but don't hang on them. Don't grab onto them. You know, I've been whale shark diving in the Galapagos, and um, on one of those dives, someone did touch the shark, and the first thing it did is just tip down and disappear. So yeah. Yeah, they, don't, they don't like the interaction. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I just imagine like some scary pregnant lady at a buffet and you're standing in between her and the food taking a picture. Like that's, that's enough to piss anyone <laughs> off. Yeah. It's <laughs> hard. I mean, you, you, it's hard. To be, you can't be so righteous that everybody hates you either. You know, there needs to be a, a middle ground of healthy balance. Re- reasonable. Yes. Uh, exactly. If only we could be ourselves. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've seen such cool photos of you tagging tiger sharks in Hawaii. So you can't say that it's just great whites. You've done some stuff with tiger sharks too. Yes, I have. Tiger sharks don't, they have a very small dorsal fin. So they don't produce as the same amount of data. And um, I did that when I first, I moved, I've been in Hawaii eight years now, when I first moved to Hawaii. And, um, and then I really backed off because there's other scientists here already studying tiger sharks, not so much on the big island, but over in Oahu and Maui. And I don't like to step in other people's territories. I try to really avoid that. And um, I, I, I offered to help them, and they really weren't interested. I mean, that's the way science is, is. It's really hard for us to raise money to do these sorts of things. And so people get very territorial, and, you know, uh, and I try to respect that when I can. Cool. But I have, um, I've, I've, the other project, though, that no one's heard about is I call it the Mega, Mega Mako Project. And that one is a full-on multi-year tracking research project right now. I have yet to publish it, but we have multi-year tracks now on these. We call them mega makos. We only tag the biggest size class of females, so we know they're they're um, sexually mature. Um, the females, to me, are more interesting to study because uh, I really believe that most sharks are like sea turtles in that where they are born, they're going to go back to give birth really it's called yes and so it's been proven in lemon sharks there's no reason why other sharks aren't doing the same thing and the the behavioral patterns and the migration patterns i'm seeing from these white sharks females that i've tagged multiple years i'm convinced they're doing the same thing it's just much harder to study on a thing like a white shark um they, they did it actually using dna over many many years on lemon sharks uh but we just don't have the access to the sharks like we do so it ha- it's got to be more anecdotal, but I really believe that's happening. That's an amazing theory and thought. That that would be amazing to be able to to show that. 
to show it? Yes. I think anecdotally we, we can show it. Um, genetic, uh, we can't track an animal long enough, not, not using existing technology to prove that. Uh, but I think with genetics, we can. It's just going to take a long time, and it's not my field. I collect samples for other people when they ask, but I don't like to be in a in a lab in a white coat. Yeah, <laughs> had a, had a, I've had other chats with scientists about this, and they're like, I don't know why everybody wants my job. This is all I do all day is I'm in a lab lab coat. Um, <laughs> I, I imagine. Oh, but back to sorry, just just so I don't I, um, forget, don't uh, to finish the, about the makos. You know, stay tuned because we have a lot of great mako data to come out. And I think what will kind of blow you away about the Mako Shark Project is it didn't actually begin it to study the Mako Sharks. I was trying to develop a tag that's less traumatic on sharks because one of the problems, and you've, I'm sure you've seen pictures of these juveniles that were tagged by Osearch in South Africa where it just destroyed their dorsal fins as they grew because they're putting them on with four bolts and those bolts can't grow with the fish. So I designed a cradle that holds the tag that uses only one bolt. And that hole from that bolt can migrate as the shark grows. And so I wanted to do it on mako sharks because they have a huge dorsal fan and they're easier to catch and deal with than a white shark because there's more of them. And actually the, the friend of mine who became, has become now my, my greatest asset, my tagging partner, um, he loves mako sharks, and he knows where to find them and when to find them. So he's done all the tagging virtually by himself, even at night. It's incredible. This guy's name is Keith Poe, um, shark tagger, I think, on Instagram. Hey, might need to be my next podcast. Yeah. <laughs> might need to chat but, with him. So first of all, the one-bolt attachment worked amazing. We have multi-year tracks from these makos, and now we have a, a really big sample size, and I just got to sit down and put my scientist hat back on and publish those papers. Okay, I seriously can't wait for that. And hopefully we can time it to the release of this podcast where something is happening and people can watch this space. Yeah, and, you know, I might... Um, I've been being asked to do a program about Makos. I'm not sure I'm going to do it, but maybe I can I share some of the data if I, on television if I do. That would be cool. I mean, that's obviously a big part of science is getting your info out there, which is always a challenge, um, which brings me to my next question. I'm about to sell my soul to them if they can come up with a pitch that I don't hate. How do you feel about Shark Week? It's tough. Um, I've, I've tried. I wrote a letter to Shark Week probably in 1997, maybe even before Oof. that. And I got all of my big time shark people, colleagues to sign this letter, objecting to the type of content that they had. I didn't even get a reply. I mean, they just totally ignored it, which is what they'll even do today. That's what they do. They ignore all the criticism. Yes. So after <laughs> many years, I decided, well, and actually, I did the Nat Geo um, program. I, I actually really did not enjoy making that show. I didn't enjoy some of the people I had to work with. Um, but what I did enjoy is if you watch, if you can deal with all the the crap that's happening behind it's okay. the scenes. It's okay. You can say bullshit on my podcast. We're all adults here. <laughs> okay. I, I have I, I like a I'm, sailor, so it's hard for me. Me <laughs> I, too. I was meant to ask you if this was PG thirteen or if no, I could no, just no. go for I'm it. A, but... I'm Australian. Go for it. Okay. All right. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, I had to do a lot of fucking assholes on that show, and I'm glad to get out of it. But if you watch that program from, if you can sit through from the first episode through the second season, 
you learned about those sharks in the same time that I le- That was all real. And the thing about National Geographic is all of the narration and the things people say must be fact-checked by in these independent fact-checkers. Shark Week, what kills me about Shark Week is they all only care about ratings. And it's a, it's a big, giant moneymaker for them. They don't have one legitimate shark scientist on their staff. Yeah. And they don't need... You can say anything you want uh, uh, on television, and it's going to be put on television. It doesn't have to be proven. So I get so upset with all the fake bullshit on Shark Week. And so, look, I've, I've done both. I've tried to change it from the outside unsuccessfully. Then I decided, well, let me do some programs, and let me see if I can change it from the inside. And I, you know, I made a couple programs that I felt pretty good about, but then I was embarrassed to be in the lineup with all the other shows. And then I got bamboozled on the last show I did was so horrific. I just got incredibly pissed that I'm not doing that anymore. But I, never uh, say never. You know, I, I might still do it again. I mean, it's, it's that thing, isn't it, where I've always been super anti-Shark Week and then they've approached me about four times now and I've just really given a piece of my mind with no response, although I wouldn't expect anybody to respond to the kind of emails that I write to. They're just like angry rants. But... Um, they approached me again recently and I was like, all right, you know what, send me some pictures because at least if, if people might see stuff on Shark Week, it might lead them to discover the stuff that I'm doing, which, you know, doesn't have that huge broad audience like Shark Week. And I don't know, we'll see what comes up with it. I, I have a feeling I'm going to regret it. I've been saying no to a lot of that stuff for a long time, but we'll see. Um, well, here, here's the reality that you need to know. First of all, you have no control over the finished product. And the people that are calling you is not the network you're being called by production companies who want to pitch a story to the network. You never get a call directly from the network. I mean, I, I do sometimes because I've been doing it for a long time, and I, I often pitch my own uh, stories directly to Discovery, and then I figure out who I want to help make it. But you're talking to a production company, that they're going to pitch the story, and then Discovery will say yes or no. And if they say yes, Discovery gets complete control over all the content you may not even see it before it gets released and every one of these shows needs to have a a really scary component to it which that's the part that bugs me the most so they either wanted to scare the hell out of people and at the same time they also want some amazing scientific discovery to happen on film which that makes me mad too because good science takes many many years and i have told them to their face you need to let scientists reveal some of their already published information that took them years to do but the general public doesn't know anything about it i mean it's just as interesting so most of the science that you see on shark week is completely fake they just like make this crazy ideas up and unfortunately there's a lot of my younger colleagues now they'll pretty much do anything to be on shark week which is disappointing to me i mean that they will they'll buy into the sensationalism and they'll do these crazy one week like research projects that don't aren't real yeah i see a lot of that and i hate to break this to the audience but it's a lot like that with many different film crews in this industry so i've said no to many people for that exact same reason um and i actually went to shark week's office in los angeles with a producer and i remember sitting down at the table of the guy who was in charge at the time because it changes so often as you know and just saying okay um how about conservation how about doing like a story like this or a story about this particular conservation thing and immediately they were just like 
we don't do conservation was their words. And then it was like, move on to the next thing. And I'll never forget that meeting because that was a big eye opener for me. And then I was like, hmm, okay. Um, so that's, I don't know, that's the reality of Shark Week, I guess. And we can only hope I that. Couldn't even, I couldn't even get them to do a program about whale sharks, which are so amazing. I mean, they're so charismatic. We don't have whale sharks figured out like we do have white sharks. I mean, white sharks now are the most studied shark on the planet. They flat out said no. And that, but then on the other side, I had a program that I did down in Baja where I was spocking out these shark camps, sort of like you were doing in Indonesia, and we filmed some of the just massive dumping of shark guts and heads and carcasses. It was disgusting, you know, all the maggots crawling. They cut all of that out. They said it's too graphic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. My Instagram's pretty graphic and people kind of don't hate that. So I feel like Shark Week needs to take a chance on that kind of stuff. And hopefully they do. And it was very similar when I ran their Instagram one year. They were like, okay, there's a limit to what you can post. And I was like, screw you. I'm going to post all my graphic images. But they, they wouldn't let me post some <laughs> of them. You were running Instagram for Shark Week? Yeah, just for like a, what you said? A, yeah, a little while there. And I was just posting images of shark finning. And then I stopped. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah. I don't know. I so far they've had no luck. They've sent me pictures that I'm like, nah. But we'll see. I don't know. Maybe I'll sell my. Well, soul. if you if you decide you need to make a decision, feel free to reach out to me because I can look at what they're offering and what they want to do, and you know perhaps give you some guidance. And you might want to get an agent to help. Yeah, you. yeah, I've considered. And just for everyone listening. Many of the documentaries we work on, not just Shark Week, but quite a few of them are often documentaries. The real magic you're going to see is from the little films that we make ourselves that tell you the truth and aren't afraid to show you things. Um, I have one more question for you about Great Whites because it's one that I get a lot and I think it's really interesting and you might be able to shed some light on this for me. Another thing that people say is sharks are coming in and they're coming closer and they're attacking people because we're taking all their food. Mm, no, I mean, if you're talking about white sharks, I would say no. Yeah, um, white. Yeah, no, I, I would say no. In fact, like in New England and in California, there is plenty of food I mean, because the marine mammals have been protected. And in fact, that's another very controversial subject. When is enough seals enough? Because their populations are getting to be, well, I can't speak authoritatively, but uh, I mean, they were protected for a reason. They were almost wiped out for like dog food and stuff. But now their numbers are back in a huge way. Yeah. And we probably don't have the numbers of the natural predators like the great whites back enough to kind of deal with that, right? No, we really don't. I mean, no, A, they're very hard to count. And B, nobody was paying attention back then. They really yeah. weren't. And um, yeah, everybody blames Jaws. It's I really don't. I mean, Jaws scared people. And they were some trophy white sharks were then taken, but it's but um, it really was the it was the wiping out of the seal populations that hurt the sharks a lot, and the incidental catches of the juveniles because yeah. they're the most susceptible to fishing gear. They accidentally get caught in gill nets and that sort of thing, and that and the the females give birth to very small litters, and they only give birth every other year at most. So their intrinsic rate of reproduction increase is very slow. That's why it's taken such a long time from when these protections went in place to actually see a difference because it just needed to get that momentum. And the curve, you know, starts bending up as, as we get 
you know, it's, it's like um, with an exponential curve. But that beginning of that curve is very, very slow. And then if we open fishing to them again and the great whites could be targeted, it could easily be knocked out very quickly as well. Yes, they can be because they, uh, they, they reproduce so slowly that it, you, you can knock them down very quickly. And you know, people say there was a study done in Hawaii many years ago on tiger sharks that indicated or suggested that the culling wasn't working. I don't believe that for a second. If you cull long enough and hard enough, how can you not have an impact? I mean, how did the shark stocks get down low to begin with? It was through directed take and indirect take it sometimes. I mean, they're caught as bycatch um, as, as well as being targeted for their fins. So a culling program can work. The argument that it doesn't work just doesn't sit right with me. And in fact, the shark conservation community, there's a lot of non-scientists in it. And a, a lot of what they say just isn't true and doesn't pass the most basic sniff test. And I think that hurts the credibility of the shark conservation community. I mean, I've heard things like, if we lose sharks, you know, we're going to lose all of our oxygen. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life, you know. And, and to say, well, if we, the sharks are, they balance the ecosystem and the whole ecosystem will crash. That's not true either. I mean, the ecosystem may change, but this planet has been through some massive changes in, in diversity and species arrays because we have had huge extinction events. The planet will survive. We might not live on this planet forever, but the planet, you know, once we do ourselves in, the planet will be beautiful again. <laughs> yeah. That's the hope. So, but in that, at the same time as saying that, which is a reality, you're not necessarily agreeing with culling, though, as a protection measure or as something that we should do to Shah. No, I want to concentrate on educating people about the, the abundance and seasonal presence of sharks. And I think we really need to start looking at ways to scare the sharks off we need deterrence yeah um and then one other thing that you said that really grabbed my attention just now was was like the great whites and the seals and the effect of their food source and that but it's not just seals for great whites in australia for example and people are like oh the fish stocks have gone down so it could be affecting great whites and they're coming in to hunt us is like what is their diet realistically and you talk about these sub-adults so the sharks that are still kind of I guess, learning how to hunt? And does that make them more of a risk? Uh, well, they, first of all, the sub-adults and the, the juveniles, they eat mostly fish. I mean, they love stingrays. They love to eat other sharks. It's one of their favorite things to eat. Um, but they'll eat, they, they've been around for 10, 12 million years. They'll eat anything they want. <laughs> they have a very diverse diet. But yes, as they get bigger, they do even their the the morphology of their teeth change. They go from you know more narrow teeth for catching fish to broad cutting teeth for cutting meat and blubber from whales and seals and porpoise. And trust me, I've cut enough whales um, blubber. I use it for bait and as an attractant. It is really really tough stuff. It dulls your knife immediately. So the fact that they can just come up and just take a big plug off in one bite just amazes me. Their teeth are incredible. But there's a learning curve for the, from going from the fish diet to um, a more larger prey like marine mammal. They they're going to experiment and they're so going to make. So we could be affecting their distribution by overfishing. Um, yes, what you said originally was the fishermen are saying that the sharks are taking all the fish, <laughs> and but that's not, that's not true. The commercial fishermen take way more biomass than these sharks do. So, so the yes, fishermen by, are by, taking the fish, and now the sharks are like, "What do I eat?" And now we have a problem. Possibly, 
uh, I think that'd be more of a problem for other species of sharks. So ones that really eat like, um, you know, types of bait fish that are caught. You know, for, for example, you have a really big uh, bluefin tuna cage operation in South Australia. They got to feed those things bait fish. They, so they are, they are persanding massive volumes of bait fish to feed those. That's having more of an impact. And the type of sharks that feed on those would be like, you know, silky sharks, mako sharks. Uh, that uh, you're going to affect their distribution, and you're going to make them hungry by wiping out all their prey. You know, like white sharks eating a lot of stingrays. I mean, is there a directed stingray um, fishery? I don't really think so in Australia. But you're asking great questions, but questions that I can't honestly answer. I just don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's just inter- interesting to think about, and it's it's also just leads me back to. The things that people ask me and, you know, are we wiping out fish stocks? Is that why great whites are attacking people? And at the end of the day, it's just like, you know what? We share the water with a very dangerous animal that has a broad diet that is still learning to hunt at various stages of its life. Perhaps it's got nothing to do with the fish being taken out or this or that. Perhaps we are just in an area where they have come to hunt and it is their right to be there. Well, and there's more of them. And And there's more more people in the water. Yeah. I mean, more people want to surf now and paddle. There's so many new things to do. Foiling, you know, kite surfing. You know, the, there wasn't all that stuff before. So there's a lot more people in the water. So there's just more opportunity. And we're not going to be able to stop the, 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 the few bites that do happen. The problem is people don't like to be on the food chain. And it's also scary because you don't see it coming. <laughs> and if you're on a Serengeti, at least you might see that line coming, have some chance to defend yourself. But you have really no chance. With a shark, and I get kind of offended when people say, "Well, the white sharks—they—it was an accident that they bit this person." Well, honestly, I don't believe that. You know, it's—you don't say it's an accident when you catch a marlin on a marlin lure. A lure doesn't look really anything like a real fish, right? It's just—it is a stimulus and it's a response, a feeding response. So, someone splashing around the water is causing a stimulus, and the shark goes, "Well, that's food." And in fact, it, it is food. And there are cases. The reason why people aren't actually eaten by white sharks is because the white shark, they take down prey that can fight back. So the way that they kill something is they come and give it one really massive bite, and then they leave it alone to let it bleed out. They don't want to be messing with it because it might scratch their eyes out. So when that ha- when some, a person gets bit, the shark backs off, and then their friends can get them out of the water. If you left that person in the water and let them die, the shark would come back and eat them, particularly if they don't have a wetsuit on. Amazing and slightly graphic, but important. Um, I am going to talk about this, guys, in other podcasts. We're going to do one, The Surfing Guide to Sharks, and it's going to have a lot of this information in there. And I'd still rather get eaten by a great white while surfing than die in traffic in my stupid car. So <laughs> Yes, or you cancer know, takes, takes years of suffering. Yep, it's a trade-off. It's, it's, it's well worth it, I think, to have a healthy ecosystem full of whales and all the other things we love. Doc, I'm going to leave you to make your sourdough because that was your one job today and I feel like I've interrupted you enough and you've got to go do that or you're going to get in trouble. Thank you <laughs> so much for all this information and for all the work you're doing. I'm really excited to see what's happening next. My pleasure and we can do it again sometime. Uh, I'll see you one day in Indonesia. Right on. All right. Thank you very much. And um, good luck with Shark Week. <laughs> Thank you. We'll be right back.